Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Appreciate you guys checking out this episode. I think it's uh, getting into October a little bit, and it's uh, cool. It's kind of nice uh, having the fall come on and the seasons change a little bit. We had a little bit of rain, and or it's kind of been a little bit back and forth, and I hope we get a little bit of an Indian summer um, with uh, kind of some nice weather sort of stretching out into part of November. I'm hopeful for that. I know we've had like a couple years of that in the past, but uh, but I don't know. It seems like it's a little bit back and forth, and I don't know. Pleasant might not be <laughs> might not be the answer for what uh, what happens this year. But um, I've been working on some film scans, and I wanted to get into that. I had uh, talked a couple podcasts ago about how I had I had sent a, a roll of 100 speed Ektar film out to a development house in I think San Clemente called the Dark Room. It was like a, a a website service that was uh, suggested to me a while back, but um, it looks uh, fine. Or yeah, they, they've got a website online that uh, talks about the film development stuff that they do. A lot of the like color film processing for thirty-five millimeter film works just great. And I think that they do medium format and other uh, types of film development as well. But I had taken a roll of. 100 speed Ektar film out of the camera after I'd finished it, I think on a trip back in August, and I had prepped it, put it in a mailer, and then sent it out to its uh, place down in, I guess, Southern California. So it took a couple weeks, and they set up an account. I got my films negative scanned, and then I think they sent the, the negatives back to me. I just received an envelope that, I think, yesterday. But a few days before that, what I got was an email with a link to download a zip file of all of the all of the images that were scanned. And so I think they were JPEG format. And I picked the higher resolution scans, which worked out a lot better for me. I think there's like a few different uh, tiers that you can select from. Like a, it maybe starts at $12 for the basic scan. Then I think it moves up to somewhere around 15 or 18 But all in all, I think I spent about $25 to get this roll of film developed and scanned and then mailed back to me and it's okay it's like a fine amount but it definitely used to be cheaper it seems like you know i think like when i go to fred Meyer and do like the one hour color film development cd only which is i think how i did a lot of it for a long time especially like through like walgreens or payless or fred Meyer or something like that you know and i just like stop and they, they pulled all those uh, those uh, operating features out a couple of years ago and then i was just uh, stuck taken my film to a cool and old uh, uh, local shop that would do the C41 processing there and they would do like 24 hour turnaround for your film but everybody kind of suffered from the same problem that they didn't have a scanning system that was really up to the technology of the day where I think uh, you know like I probably mentioned even way back when I was talking about all this film scanning stuff that many of the film scanners that they had uh, they had introduced to a lot of the, the like the supermarket you know department stores was a like two or three megapixel scanner, and I think it was maybe for convenience or speed, and it's probably still similar to that. You know, if you if you order like the most basic scans, that probably take the least time and are like the most efficient to process through. So I, I do kind of understand it, but uh, but a lot of those scans that I had automatically created for me through those department store, you know, film processing one hour photo uh, rooms were were yeah just a couple megapixels, or you know they were like you know, I don't know. 1600 pixels across and you think oh 
man, that's not, that's not very big nowadays. So, uh, so that, that ended up being like a problem after a while. So what I ended up doing was I'd get the film developed and then I had ended up buying a, I think it was a Pacific image prime film 7200. I'm trying to remember what that one was. And then I used a film scanning software, silver ice. No, there was a silver package can't remember the name of that film software now silverfast i think it might be that but uh it was this yeah it was this film this film scanning software that was really pretty complex to operate and it was it was a pretty professional uh kind of scanning tool that you could make a lot of different changes and features to to, to kind of get better scans uh, with whatever you were working with but you could make a lot of different adjustments to it and it had a lot of uh kind of more advanced algorithmic features to sort of repair spots and and film scratch problems i guess it would kind of clean up a little bit of that damage like when i'd scan stuff if, if you just had the raw scan you'd be really surprised or maybe not at how bad it is or you know just there's like a little dust or a little, little little artifacts that sort of seem to be in the scan that don't really look correct and uh, or just little pock marks in the film emulsion itself and you can kind of see those like on pieces of film when you scan them but but the software would really kind of go through and sort of tune tune that out a little bit and i was always really kind of surprised to see some of the the ways it could handle that positively you know you look at like photoshop and it's really kind of a hit or miss sometimes if it'll if it'll fill in correctly so uh, it was it was a cool piece of software but it helped me uh, down or helped me scan a bunch of film negatives that i shot i think like a lot of the stuff that i shot with the f4 is where i'd, I'd do the c41 film development uh get the negatives back and then i would have to like spend it would really be like two days after that you know just kind of like hobby time now just kind of like putting a scan in and then letting the scanner kind of run through it for 45 seconds is sort of what it seemed like but it was just this big kind of grinding motor noise as it ran this uh, scanner head over the film negative with a big light and you get these pretty good scans from your negatives and i think it's probably still some of the higher resolution scans that i have from from some of my photographs come came from that that prime film film scanner so i was happy that i did that for a while i think that was what you know 2000 maybe 16 17 or something like that that i'd worked with that uh that film scanner a lot or no it was earlier than that maybe i think 2015 16 then i kind of moved into the sony a7r stuff but um but yeah the film scanner stuff was was really cool and i was uh i was happy to uh kind of get to go through that part of it and, you know then you get the bump of not having to pay for like the send out services and then you also just can get the less expensive film development part of it and then it sort of feels like you're doing the dark room work again right like you you know you you, you have to kind of you have to de- I know, you're not doing it because you're sending it <laughs> you're sending it to a place to literally just get that one part done of develop the film but now once you have the negatives they haven't really been made into anything so you, it's kind of like working with the older tools i never did that i was always into the the digital field of it but w- through the way of working with film now and as it is like you know 2020 or at the time like 20 14, 15, 16, it was cool to, to kind of have it be like a different set of tools, but still kind of work with film photos and film negatives to make cool images and cool digital art or cool digital or things that were distributed through a digital mechanism, but were still created through like a, a film system. You know, it was just cool. And then uh, I was kind of like, uh, like that for the, the side kind of hobby photography stuff that I would work on. Um, so I think now 
in the future. I've gotten rid of that Prime Film scanner. I sold it on eBay a few years ago. Got a good price for it. A lot of those pieces I was able to, to kind of sell off again for, for near and around what it cost me to get it, uh, which was cool. I think like I had like a, a, a photo printer for a long time, like some uh, higher-end uh, 13 by 19 photo printer. I was able to sell that off on eBay for a good price too. Digital stuff, you know, like cameras and stuff sort of start to depreciate. But really now, a lot of things kind of hold their value well enough if they're if they're functional um but i uh yeah i sold that stuff off for a while and then now what i'm working with is i guess the idea of just sending it out to a dark room or you know just some servicing some facility that will process my film and then return it back to me with some high quality scans and i think now uh as i can do it. What I want to do is uh, is try and get higher quality scans of the files. I mean, even still, that's uh, sort of a setback that I have is that I do have the negative still in a big uh, negative storage box over here, which is great. And the but the problem is is that the functional file that I have available to me to use to make uh, art out of or images out of is really just uh, not much better than like what a you know like a two megapixel file or something. So it's okay for some web use, uh, but really for printing. Even small photos, it's kind of kind of a little crunchy in the, the file size. So I'd like to go back through and take a bunch of those those film negative strips, stack them together, mail those off to one of these processing centers like the darkroom, and have them uh, go through it, scan those files again in like a higher resolution, uh, in whatever kind of professional capacity they have to do so, uh, and then send those back to me, and then I'd have all new scans, all new versions of those images that I can go back through, edit in different ways, or, you know, I have more control over the file and how I can use it, and I can finally use it on some of the more modern uh, art stuff that I'd like to do. I'd like to make a print of some of those things, you know? I'd like to make a, a canvas print of some some nice film photograph I had in the mountains. There's a number of them that I think are really cool, but really as it is, those those photos just aren't available to me to do that kind of work with because I can only make them maybe five by seven maybe eight by ten you can kind of extrapolate it out to eight by ten and you're like oh, yeah, 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 that's fine but it's not an art piece it really doesn't seem it doesn't seem like that that nice or that high quality uh, just because the files are, are just so so tiny in some ways so uh we'll see if that kind of changes i know there's some ways around it too but uh but if there's a way that i can kind of uh just get get it from the raw source again that might be uh, a cool way to go about it but for this uh, roll of ektar film what i did is i imported those photographs over to Lightroom. Uh, I've been using that X-Touch controller that I was talking about. So I have you know, kind of some knobs and sliders to, to kind of move around to mix the, the color uh, or, you know, the, the development settings of the photographs that I brought in. And I've, I've been kind of trying to mess with that a bit to see if I can get used to it or see if it kind of hits most of the points that I want to. It's, it's sort of strange. You know, the tools sort of um, affect how you make adjustments, how you make edits how you kind of see the edits and stuff. So it's kind of interesting to work with some different tools and, and sort of see how that kind of changes a few things. But uh, for the most part, yeah, it's been going really cool. And uh, just kind of cruising through the photos, you kind of pick out uh, pick out the the winners there, you know, the the, the flagged as picks photographs. Uh, so I go through and I I'd mark those photographs up and then I kind of go through and make some color adjustments to those sort of individually. Uh, start with sort of the basic development settings and I go into some of the lens correction stuff. Kind of tricky on a film camera. In Lightroom, there's no there's no metadata from a digital camera to import over from a film scan or from you know just some scan that's a JPEG from you know just it doesn't know what camera you had it doesn't know what lens you used 
it doesn't really know how to affect the barrel distortion. So some of those things you have to kind of select for a little bit more manually. If you do understand, or if you do know what it was, like, oh, I had a Canon camera and I used a, a 17 to 40 f4 lens, and I think you can just go in and, and pick that. And I'm, it's, it, I'm not sure how it affects it or if that distortion effect is is the most accurate profile. Now that we're working with like a different camera and a different uh, well, and the same lens, you know, so I'm hoping that it's just like the lens profile affects that frame the same way, but it seems to be very subtle. So uh, the barrel distortion stuff sometimes is something I work with, but also sometimes I don't, you know, really sometimes I think part of the, part of the photographic effect is sort of what the lens does to the picture. And sometimes I, I'd like to leave the barrel distortion effect in the photographs. Sometimes there's a a lot of rounding that seems to happen or just sort of, you know, it's, it's very strange when you see the adjustments of, uh, you know, before and after a barrel distortion adjustment because it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's the same image, but there's just like a little bit of flexing and just some parts of it. And you think, wow, like what a weird, subtle change, but like, I guess that is flattening it or maybe it's not, maybe it's distorting it more if it's uh, incorrectly calibrated. So it's just kind of interesting to, to see how that uh, is and how it looks sometimes, but, but I've had it help photographs, and I've also had it uh, sort of sort of ding up the composition of a photograph just in the way that it would stretch it. It would sort of pull a few things out of line that I'd hope to kind of compose in a certain way. Like if you're really trying to put something like right at the top of the frame or right off the frame, it, you know, I just sort of sort of pulled and stretched it in a way that that it, it made it. Um, they made the composition changes that I was trying to put in uh, not really work. So I've noticed that a couple of times. I think it crops it a little bit to make the distortion occur. So you just, you lose like a little shaving off the edges of the photograph to make that barrel distortion kind of fit the frame again. And then sometimes if there's something there, some, some kind of context or detail, like uh, I think like, I don't know if you imagine you, uh, you framed up like a, a page of newspaper text or something, you know, right up to the corner where the letters met the, the, the up or, you know, the, the X and Y axis of the photographic frame. But then if you added a barrel distortion, it might, it might swing or press or stretch that text out and off the composition of that frame edge there. And that's sort of the, the types of things that might have happened before. I use that example, I guess, because you could kind of, kind of visualize sort of the, the flexing or stretching of um, a page of text that was just supposed to be flat. You can kind of imagine those wor words kind of pulling off or drifting off or, um, or not being squared up on under the page in the same way, way as they would have been at the corners. And so that's where some of the barrel distortion stuff can come in and uh, bite me. But, uh, but I don't know, I guess it's straighter or it doesn't have the vignetting that it would have had otherwise. But uh, there's, yeah, no controls for that sort of stuff for the film camera. And it's a feature I use a bit, but but maybe not necessarily all the time. Um, so I was going through editing a bunch of photographs and stuff. Uh, there's, I think, a lot of images through there. I've been pretty slow to shoot through this roll of film. I've been doing a lot of stuff, probably with like the digital camera and other, you know, that 360 camera that I was into. Um, but yeah, I was going through and shooting. I kind of shoot it alongside with the, the digital photographs that I'm taking out on a trip. You know, if I come up to some kind of, I don't know, thing and I think, ah, aha, I'll take a film photo of this. Uh, then I, I pull it out of the camera bag that I have with me and uh, try and shoot a couple frames. But I was going through, marking up the flagged pics, editing them up. I was noticing, and I'm not sure if it's just this camera. See, this is the first roll of film that I put through 
this uh, Canon EOS camera. I think I was saying it's kind of like a champagne-colored plastic. Ugh. Champagne-colored plastic uh, camera body. It's like champagne and I think it was supposed to be like silver. or It's like a plastic silver is sort of what they were going for. I don't know if it really worked out, but it's probably 1998, 1999 era, and it's fine. Uh, it's uh, it's but yeah, it was yeah, real inexpensive. I think it was like thirty dollars, forty dollars on uh, sites like Keh, or you can probably find similar models on eBay, and I'm sure other sites too. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's easy to kind of pop in there and try and check out some old kind of inexpensive. Canon cameras. You can get Rebels, like a Rebel film camera from the the 2000 2001 era, for for just dirt cheap, like sixteen dollars, six dollars. You know, they, it depends on the model or the the, the quality, but they're very inexpensive because there was a lot of those produced. A lot of them, I think, sold during that era too. And uh, yeah, it's cool if you want to if you want to just grab a camera, which is cool too. You know, the film camera stuff is is nice because you can you can get an SLR. For again, like I'm saying, maybe less than twenty dollars if you shop around correctly, and it's really just a a black box with a a lens, you know, and you're able to control the features. And and when you're able to hit the shutter and capture an image, then you're able to expose that onto the film, and that's what you've captured. So it's really cool. You kind of have you don't have to worry about some of the same uh, feature, or you know, is, is this is this high enough technology? Is this good enough? Does it have uh, low enough noise? Does it have enough buttons on it? Or is some of the stuff that we uh, kind of think about when we're trying to shop around correctly for the right camera when we're working in a, a digital space. You know, you pick out like a point and shoot, and you, you, know, you find out oh, it's like it doesn't focus at all, or you know, it takes a long time to to do whatever thing, or the images kind of come out maybe a little yellow, or they don't the lens looks a little funky or something, whatever it is. You know, a lot of cameras now, they're almost all great, so it doesn't really matter, but uh, they're always you know, better or as good as the types of cell phone photos you can get now, which are all really pretty stellar when you think about the type of technology that you're able to use. I mean, you, you imagine back to like, I don't know, even 10 years ago, even in 2010, let's say, you know, when it was all actually kind of a, a developed thing when camera phones have been around for maybe seven, eight years pretty, pretty widely. And even at that time, when it was quite popular, I mean, I think like Instagram was a, a working mobile application near and around 10 years ago. Can that be 2010, 2011? It was right around now, 10 years ago, that Instagram started taking off, right? And then it was in 2011 that they sold to Facebook? No, it was in 2012. It was in February 2012, and I joined in February of 2011. Interesting. I think? I think that that's right. But I think they started right around now, 10 years ago. Uh, so that means, yeah, mobile photography was taking place. But if you remember, right, the, those filters in Instagram were, were created to correct or justify how bad the cell phone cameras of the time were you take a cell phone picture it had no contrast it was very yellow it really wasn't uh, a sensor that was responsive enough to the low light environments that we'd often be in even in like pretty well lit environments it just would kind of pull out this sort of uh, yellow kind of photo that would you know just kind of be grayed out and this film would do that forever too but uh, it, yeah, it just didn't really look as as high quality as it does now. I mean, it's it's amazing the kind of uh, low light conditions that we're able to 
get one of these cameras to operate in that is just a simple film camera. I mean, now you look at like the the iPhones that have come out or like the new one that they've just announced, and it's just insane. It's stellar cameras that they're able to um, to show you now. So it's really cool. That you know, you look, you're just like, oh, how many lenses can they fit on the front of that thing? Or you know, how, <laughs> it's it's wild, but it's cool how well you can capture images now digitally. Back in what 2000, yeah, it was like. Or 2010, it was yeah, really kind of yellowed images and stuff. Um, I don't know, so it stinks. All right, it's cool that uh, I guess it's getting better. It's nice as that goes, but uh, yeah, for a lot of what was I saying? The film camera that I had. This is great about doing podcasting, but the uh, the film camera that I had, champagne colored. Got it on KH for thirty bucks. I think the images this time, I think it turned out a little soft is probably what I was going to say. So sort of similar to an older camera, uh, like an older digital camera that had those kind of yellowed images. Uh, I shot a roll through this camera that is the first one. So we'll see if it kind of reproduces the same effect as I shoot through like another roll and maybe a more organized or um, I guess thoughtfully considered lighting condition. But what I noticed is that, uh, yeah, the film kind of developed in a way that had like a little bit of haziness to it. And I'm not sure what caused that. Uh, I mean, it could have been a light leak, but it really didn't look like the light leak kind of condition. Uh, It might've been like maybe closer to like something like expired film is sort of what it looked like where it just didn't really like turn over and it just sort of looks like a little grayed out in some spots where I would have thought it would uh, it would be like a little bit more crisp. Some of the photographs came out fine and do look very crisp and do look very um, bright and colorful. Like they, they, they were really able to like capture that, the, the, the color quality of the light at the time that the photograph was taken. And so that might be like a more uh, just like selective opportunity thing that happened like maybe the the photographs that they were taking were in conditions that would be uh bad light uh it's possible but really they're you know i mean i don't know i I took digital photos against against it right there and and really like a film photograph should be able to handle some backlight or some uh kind of side light that's uh maybe gonna be a little hazy or something but uh but yeah it just kind of seemed like like a few photographs were a little bit washed out and how they ended up developing sort of how it goes with a lot of film i remember losing like a a number of frames a roll on that nikon fg20 that i talk about sometimes uh that like manual focus manual wind film camera that i had uh i'd photographed like a bunch of stuff back in like 2012 2013 with that camera and I would lose like a couple frames a roll and just the operation of how that camera worked. Like it would just kind of crunch a frame or it, it wouldn't wind it correctly. And then you have to like, why well, you just have to rack it again the way it's built. You can't like back it up or double, expo- double expose or anything like that. So you just have to, well, I guess we'll just crank it over again and shoot. And then, well, you know, whatever happened in that frame. So you just get like a, a black one or, a, a, you know, some white frame that never developed and, uh, that was always kind of like, oh, but it was also similar to that with like the N80 too, or with any, any one of those auto wind film cameras where uh, like similar to this Canon one, once you, once you put the the feed of the film into the camera body and then you put the canister in the film and then once you slam that, that door shut on the camera, uh, once it latches, it'll kind of auto wind, it'll kind of grab the, the end of the film and then wind it up on the other side so that it's matched up and then ready to go at frame one. But I do remember like a couple of times where it would just kind of like mess that up or it would grab like a few too many 
frames at the beginning of the roll to kind of wind it in before it figure out where it was. But I would kind of have that happen or, or even near the end when you'd shoot and you could have shot maybe one more frame on it or two more frames on it, but just the way that it would count, it would stop and then auto wind back. And I remember like a couple of kind of tricky things with that or like where, yeah, you'd, you'd uh, take a picture and then it would wind to the next one. Like it would, you know, auto winds to the next roll or the next frame in the roll, but then it would fail at that. <laughs> then it would shut off. Then you'd have to flip the switch, turn it back on. And then it would, I think, wind again, like I'm saying, uh, you know, because that had like a wind error, but it would wind out again, and then you'd like lose that frame. And I remember, I remember dropping a bunch of frames to that. That was a bummer. I probably, I don't know, it's not that much, but it's just sort of the cost of doing business, it seems like, with some of the film stuff. If you do know what you're doing, and you can kind of anticipate some of those problems coming up, there's really like a number of things you can do to mitigate it. I think that's sort of what makes a person like a, you know, I don't know, like a skilled operator of that trade versus uh, someone else that's not which might be me, you know, shoot. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's just like, well, uh, I tried this out. It didn't really work well. And that's the frustrating thing about people that um, that want to get into some film photography. You know, it's cool. It's cool to pick up an old camera at a flea market, something like that. And then you grab a roll of film where you're going to get, I mean, where you're going to get a higher quality roll right now. You're going to have to special order it or just order it on Amazon. It's not that special, but you can order Amazon Prime some roll of Ektar, you know, some kind of nicer Kodak portrait, throw it in a fun camera you got. You can also probably get that Fujifilm stuff at a local-ish place. Probably most, I think you can probably get it at a bigger department store, though it's rare now. I know it's kind of rare. Uh, but I think you can get like the Fujifilm 400 in a number of spots. That's really it, though. You're not going to get any other kind of film stock just uh, publicly out. You're going to have to go to a camera store. If you're in a city, you can probably do that. Otherwise, it's still kind of, I mean, you know, like a, a mid-sized town probably has something, but it's still sort of sort of special. And probably right now it's odd odd to get something like that, you know, during the COVID lockdown pandemic stuff. I'm sure it's uh, limited access. So, yeah, online order. 15 bucks or 10 bucks or seven bucks, something like that to get uh, the uh, professional film stock. And then it's going to be 25 bucks or so. Like I've just found out to, uh, to develop that roll of 36 frames. And it might be that the camera was bad or that something failed or that a battery didn't work right or that the meter is blown out now and that all your photos are overexposed. Uh, but I've just heard so many times and have experienced so many times that like, uh, you know, a piece of film had uh, failed before it was developed or the exposure process of the film in the camera is messed up in some way and therefore doesn't develop properly. And then it's like, man, ouch, like, you know, you're, you're in it, a, you're in it a bit to find out that, ah, I guess it wasn't as satisfying as I thought to get this uh, roll of film developed. And that's what I hear about, you know, kind of like the, the hobbyists and stuff that are kind of getting into some film stuff. But if you can, and if you can get past that hump, it takes really about four or five rolls of film uh, to sort of get past that that initial hump of what is this and what am I doing and what happens when I put it in here and what happens when I take it out, um, if you can kind of kind of think your way through that, then you'll be in a good spot. That's at least how it was for me back when I was trying to get into it. Was uh, I kind of understood how to get the film in, get the film going, get some shots in. Uh, but there, but there was definitely like a bit of a curve, and then when you get the film back is when you kind of discover too. Oh, okay, like that's when I did this in the photograph, and it it worked better, or it didn't work, or you know, like you try and do like some exposure compensation thing, and it's like, oh, that was that was too bright. And then you learn about bracketing or something, you know, like how like photojournalists used to do uh, back in the day, where they'd have to like they'd be like I don't know if it's gonna work out right, so they'd have to bracket an exposure 
you know, uh, uh, a bright exposure, a mid exposure and a low exposure, hoping one of those was the properly metered place for that photograph. Uh, and that's where you get like bracketing systems on some of the higher end professional DSLRs. Now you can kind of go into some of those deeper features, find bracketing. And that's how like HDR photographers uh, kind of set up some of the automatic automatic ways that they might approach capturing an HDR images, um, setting up their bracketing to do something similar where they have one one f-stop overexpose, one even exposure, and then one f-stop underexposed. I think that's right. Uh, where, yeah, it's like bright, mid, and then dark. And then they're able to combine those tonal ranges to make something that has a higher dynamic range. And they use that sometimes through a process called bracketing that sort of automates that, uh, that exposure change for every three frames. So, you, you know, high, mid, low, and then again, high, mid, low, and then again, high, mid, and so on. Uh, kind of cool that they, yeah, that they were doing that, but I think that's what they would do for some of the action sequences that they would have to do uh, some photojournalism in. I think they use that in Vietnam a lot. That's sort of what I had understood. I know that it's, it existed as a thing outside of that, but I think it was part of some of the, the press in the, the, that were deployed or that were, what is it, embedded with? Uh, yeah, with the military over in Vietnam, and I think they would use a lot of bracketing techniques to try and get uh, exposures out of the field. I guess it was kind of difficult. You can imagine, right? But uh, but yeah, I think that's like one of the ways that they were able to to kind of do that. Um, so yeah, bracketing stuff is is kind of cool, uh, or to kind of do that so you can see like the the framing or the light in the frame and see like which one exposes better. Um, but yeah, it was cool going through a bunch of film photographs and stuff. Going through my uh, first roll of film out of that uh, Canon camera has been pretty cool. Uh, it looks nice. The scans are nice. Darkroom did a good job. The the they look good. They're uh, I got like the super fine quality scans. Uh, so I think they're I don't know if they're maybe twelve megapixel something around there. Maybe a little more than that. You can kind of zoom into it pretty well, and it seems like it would print up to a reasonably large shot size. I think it's it's probably like a uh, what is it, a 24 or 22-inch print? Somewhere around there, as I think probably would it be well-rated to. So it's kind of cool. I think I'm happy with those prints. I'm going to try them out in the future. I might try out another couple of competing film development services to see how those are going and uh, see if there's any differences or, or I don't know, use or speed of service or something. But really, it, it's so long for me to get a roll of film shot through that uh, at least like right now or at least without like some kind of specific need of it that it hasn't really worried me too much but i do want to go out and uh, and try and try and work through a, a roll of film a little bit more specifically that'd be kind of cool i should do that on one of these uh real soon upcoming desert trips i've been trying to get out a little bit more to some of that stuff so i'll talk about some of the more uh, outdoorsy desert stuff coming up here real soon too but yeah it's been cool october's a good month and uh you know a lot of stuff going on but uh hopeful that uh yeah kind of keeps going through smoothly so i'm gonna try and keep uh, up with some camping stuff keep up with some photography and film stuff and yeah editing through a roll of film a couple of good ones on there i'll talk about some of the specific photos at some time but yeah you'll see them around they'll be up on the website at, at some time but uh but yeah thanks a lot for listening to listening to this episode of the billy newman photo podcast you can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com you can help me uh, help me out at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. It's a uh, 
donation-based system, sort of like Patreon. There's different levels and stuff if you're interested in, or you can make any kind of donation uh, or contribution that you would want to the podcast. And if you're interested, uh, go to the About page, and you can contact me at my email address or through the contact form there. Love to hear from anybody that's uh, bothered to listen to this podcast to check it out. So, um, yeah, thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Bye.